Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you turned in this morning. So take your Bible, and uh, because it's Bible question and answer, we won't be in one passage. We'll be uh, bouncing around in a variety of different passages, so make sure you have a Bible that you can turn. We won't turn to, to all the passages, and because of time, we won't be able to give thorough explanations to every uh, question, but hopefully just some thoughts that, uh, that will... Uh, help in resolving some of the questions that you're wrestling with and you turned in. And these are in no special order, just the order uh, that they were turned in. So first question for tonight. Um, let's look at Matthew 23. This is just one passage. It's not a- about this passage, but this is one that we'll, we'll look at. Matthew 23. And the question is this, um, would you please explain what sovereignty of God means? I have always thought it meant God was in control of all things. And that is what it means when we talk about the sovereignty of God. It, it is an expression, a phrase that describes him as being Lord, uh, Lord of the universe, the one who is in control of all things. So that is what the word means. Uh, God is in control and will accomplish his purposes. However, my guess is that uh, your question probably is a little more complex than that because this is not a simplistic idea. Uh, When you talk about the will of God, the sovereignty of God and His will, um, this is something that Christians have wrestled with uh, down through the ages. Theologians have written volumes on this trying to wrestle with it, and uh, there are some terms that are used. I think they're helpful terms. Because when you're talking about the will of God and His sovereignty, uh, you have several components that come into play. For example, uh, one term that uh, is helpful maybe in understanding God's sovereignty is what theologians refer to as God's decreed will. That is, what God has decreed to happen. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 is a verse you could put with that where it says that God causes all things to work together for the counsel of His will. He works all things together according to the counsel of his will. That is, he will accomplish his purposes. Ultimately, he will. Uh, However, we also have, when it comes to the will of God, we have what some theologians call the uh, prescriptive will of God. First one, the decreed will of God, what he has determined to happen, what he has determined to carry out, what he has determined to accomplish. Uh, His prescriptive will, that is what he prescribes. That is what he... Uh, desires people to do what he, whatever term you want to use here, wishes. Uh, the, this would be encapsulated in his commands. In other words, uh, Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, but speak the truth. That is God's prescriptive will. That's what he wills us to do as believers. That's what he commands us to do. That's what he tells us to do. So any exhortations you have in Scripture, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, put off the old man, put on the new, any of the exhortations you have uh, would fall under this category of the prescriptive will of God. It is his will. That's why he expresses it in exhortation or command. Uh, in, in the technical term would be imperatives. But as you know, we don't always follow his prescriptive will, even as believers. And certainly the world doesn't. People in the world just do what they want to do. There's none righteous, no, not one, none who seeks after God. And so then there is another term that Christians have used and wrestling with this down through the centuries. And that is the term, the permissive will of God. Uh, That is what he allows. It's not his desire. 
Uh, it's not his, uh, again, it's tough to know what terms to use here, not his preference, not his wish, uh, but it's certainly what he allows. And so uh, an example, the reason I had you turn to Matthew 23 is in verse 37, you have Jesus as he is looking over Jerusalem. You have him saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So basically what Jesus is saying here, this is what I wanted, but that's not what you wanted. I wanted to do this. This was my will, but not your will. Now, some people will get a little nervous me using that term because they, they don't like the term will used that way, that Jesus would say, this is my will. They would say, well, it wasn't his will. If it was his will, he would accomplish it. It was his preference, his desire. But it, it, in, in my mind, at least, a lot of it becomes semantics. It's what he wanted. He, he clearly said, this is what I wanted to do. This was my will, but you did your will. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray when his disciples came to him and said, teach us to pray. One of the things he said that we ought to pray is, um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Clear implication of that is that that's not automatic. God's will isn't going to always be done. Now, again, overall, big picture, decreed will, he will accomplish his purposes. And this is why Scripture, for example, talks about Jesus being the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Before God ever laid the foundation of the world, he, it was His will, His plan, His decree that uh, He would redeem people by the death of His Son. The death of Jesus wasn't, certainly wasn't an afterthought. It was in the eternal plan of God, the eternal will of God. But we wouldn't say, unless, again, you want to argue terminology, that it was God's will in the sense of desire or wish, for Adam and Eve to sin. Because he told them what he wanted them to do and not do. And they went against him. So they clearly went against his will. And yet it was no surprise. It was a part of God's plan. It was in his eternal plan that man would fall. That's why Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So this, this uh, question that you asked about the sovereignty of God, uh, it, it is very complex. It certainly, we, we know Scripture talks about God so, being sovereign, in control, and that nothing can thwart His plan. But we also have statements like this and many others where it's very clear that people go against what He wants. Go, they go against His will. And so how these all intersect, the decreed will of God, the prescriptive will of God, uh, the permissive will of God, gets, uh, gets very complicated sometimes. You know, uh, it, you wouldn't want to say to someone, this would be, this would be a, an abuse of Scripture, an abuse of the sovereignty of God. You know, you just find out that a friend of yours, his or her spouse, ran off with someone else and was unfaithful and, and blew up the marriage. Well, this was God's will. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't God's will. Well, that, that would be an abuse of Scripture. That's no way to use the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That God determined, God willed that for you, for your spouse to go be unfaithful. One of the things that Scripture is very clear on, God is not the author of sin, uh, and we need to be very careful about attributing to God uh, any, any responsibility for sin. In fact, I've been rereading the book of Job quite a bit lately, and uh, you might find it interesting to note that uh, the, the issue that Job basically got in trouble over, if you read it, you remember his friends, they, they were so wrong in representing God that at the end of the book, God said, Job is going to have to offer a sacrifice for you so your sin can be forgiven, implied to withhold my judgment. 
But Job also got a rebuke. And the rebuke that Job got wasn't the same as his friends who were way off, but it was because he just couldn't, he couldn't wrap his mind around what was happening and basically be, began to accuse God, God of evil, and accuse God of, and he didn't know this divine interplay in heaven that Satan asked for permission. It was from Satan, etc. So you just need to be careful when you walk in this area what statements you make and what you say uh, because it's, it is not a simplistic issue. It's pretty complex. But in answer to your question, those are just some thoughts uh, on the sovereignty of God. And uh, as I say, it's, it's uh, not an easy doctrine to unravel when it comes down to events in, in life on a daily basis. So uh, next question uh, says this. Um, uh, let's turn it over to Jude. Again, the question is not on Jude, but... We'll, we'll just one statement here out of Jude to answer it. And the question is this. What is unconditional love? Doesn't God set conditions? And the answer to that question, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, be evasive or avoid it. The, the answer to that question is yes and no. It, it is both. And let me explain. Uh, in one sense, God's love is unconditional because uh, Paul could say in the book of Romans that when we were enemies, God loved us. So that's unconditional. He loved us as enemies. When we were sinners, God loved us. Christ died for us. So in a sense, God loved us when there was nothing in us to love. So it's unconditional. Furthermore, 1 John 4 says twice, God is love. It doesn't say God loves, which is true, that God loves, but it says God is love, which is even more of a statement than saying God loves. That is his nature. God is love. That's who he is. He, it's, it, it's maybe a poor way to say it, but he can't help but love because that's, that's who he is. That's what he is. God is love. Uh, so in that sense, God's love is unconditional, but the condition, and maybe this is what you're, you're wrestling with, the condition is in experiencing his love. In other words, not all people experience his love, even though God is love, because there are conditions on whether or not you really experience the benefits of his love. For example, in Romans chapter 8, we read, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Don't stop there. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those who are in Christ experience the love of God in a different way, uh, in a way that unbelievers don't experience the love of God and won't experience the love of God. But not only that, there can even be a distinction among believers in experiencing the love of God. Uh, here in Jude, verse 21, we have this statement down near the end of the letter where Jude says, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, what does that mean? Keep yourselves in the love of God? Does that mean keep, your, keep doing things so God will love you? No, that's not, not the idea at all. He says it exactly how he wanted to say it. Keep yourself in the love of God. So let me illustrate this. Uh, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, by doing what he just says in these verses, building yourself up and, and your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. When we do those things, we keep ourselves in the sphere where we can experience God's love. Uh, to illustrate it further, uh, if the sun is shining, it's a bright sunny day, and you are out in the sun 
you get shined on, right? I mean, the sun is bright, uh, the sun is powerful, it's strong, and if you're in its way, if you will, you get shined on. But if you put yourself under a shade tree, you don't experience the benefits of the sun. The sun hasn't changed. It's your actions or your position that has changed things. In a similar way, that's what Jude is saying here, that as a Christian, God is love, God loves his children immensely, but our actions can determine whether we put ourselves in the shade or in the sun. Uh, When we don't do what the Lord wants us to do, it hasn't changed God's love for us, but we've put ourselves in a position of being shielded, if you will, in the shade to stay away from the, the, uh, the, the love of God. So that's what Jude is referring to here. So again, in summary, to answer your question, what is unconditional love? Well, it is love which is not based on the loveliness of the other person, the, the deservedness, the worthiness. Uh, does God set conditions? Yes and no. No, in one sense, he, he doesn't because he is love and uh, that's who he is. But the, the condition is more on our part of whether we experience his love. Are we in Christ to really experience the eternal love of God? And then, as believers, are we walking with Christ, walking in the light, to use First John's uh, phrase, so that we experience the love of God? Or have we, by our actions, put ourselves in the shade, as it were, where we don't experience the benefits of God's love? All right, next question um, says this. Uh, in Acts chapter 12... Uh, Peter is miraculously rescued from prison and death by an angel. In verse 19, we learn that the soldiers guarding him were executed according to the law. If I was Peter, I might feel guilty about their deaths. Did he feel this way? Should he feel this way? Well, as you know, if you, Pastor Jeremy preached on last Sunday morning, uh, we are not told. We're not told how Peter felt about it. Uh, because it's important to remember that this wasn't Peter's doing. This wasn't Peter's choice. Uh, It was the Lord's. And in fact, it's sort of a humorous text, as I'm sure Pastor Jeremy brought out last week, because here the church is praying for Peter, and when he's released, he he has more difficulty getting in the prayer meeting than he does out of prison, because they, you know, they go back to their praying. So this really had nothing to do with Peter whatsoever. This was This was God's choice. It was God's, and I'll use the term from the first question, God's sovereign choice to release Peter. And the reason we know it was God's sovereign choice is because in the early verses of the chapter, we're told that James was beheaded. So James was taken captive, beheaded. Peter was taken captive, and the intention was to behead him. But God sovereignly chose to intervene and release him. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think it is likely that when James was arrested and put in prison, that believers prayed for him? Almost certainly. So James was prayed for. Peter was prayed for. God chose to let James be beheaded. God chose to rescue Peter. So again, it's really a powerful passage on the sovereignty of God. You can't explain why God does what he does. Two of his children, two of his servants, one's beheaded, one is miraculously released. You can't explain that other than God's sovereign choice. So again, I I emphasize this point just to say you might be looking at this through the grid of Peter's eyes like, well, did he feel bad about the guards? Well, remember, he was asleep when all this unfolded. He was awakened, get up, get dressed, we're leaving. And so this is, we don't see that story through Peter's eyes. We see, Luke records that to see it through the grid of the sovereignty of God. Uh, So we're not told what Peter's feelings were about it. Did he feel bad or whatever? This was the Lord's doing, the Lord's choice, and that's where we leave it. 
So we, the text doesn't even seek to answer the kinds of questions that we might ask on that because it's looking at it from a completely different grid. All right, next question. Uh, you don't have to turn back to it. I think most of you are familiar with this, but the question is this. Genesis 2.18 states, it is not good that the man should be alone. Does that mean that God intended for all mankind to be married before sin entered the world? No, I think that would be, uh, would be pushing that text beyond its intention because in the context, if you remember the story, you have the creation account and you have all of the animals and uh, Adam names them all, but there was not uh, found for him a helper suitable for him. It's not good that the man should be alone. And, and I'm not saying that there isn't a general principle there, but it's a very specific statement. It's basically God saying it's not good for this man to be alone. If we're going to have more people, we need a wife here. If we're going to procreate, the, carry out the human race, it's not good for this man to be alone. And, uh, you know, if, you were to, if we took time to go into 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul, who was writing as a single man, actually uses a similar phrase. It is good, he says, for some to be as I am, implied single. So we wouldn't want to take from Genesis 2.18 a principle that states that Marriage is preferable to singleness because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is abundantly clear that there are advantages to being married and there are advantages to being single. In fact, some people read 1 Corinthians 7 as if Paul is putting down marriage because he talks so much about the advantages of singleness. He's not in any way putting down marriage. It's the same man who, who exalted marriage uh, by using the analogy of Christ in the church in Ephesians 5. So Paul was by no means against marriage. He exalted it in his description in Scripture. Uh, but he's just, in 1 Corinthians 7, giving a realistic appraisal of marriage and singleness. And he says, with marriage comes responsibilities, and you can't be singular in your devotion to the Lord. In fact, you shouldn't be. If you're married, you need to think about how to please your husband, how to please your wife. That's what the text says. If you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good in your marriage. If you don't ever think about being a good spouse. And so uh, Paul says there in that text that, no, it's good. There's, there's good in being single. And it's good to be married. So, uh, so no, I, I wouldn't push that. Now, I realize that the first Corinthians 7 is after sin, and you say before sin entered the world. But uh, even if we broaden it out uh, to other passages of Scripture, I don't think we can really support the idea that, uh, that the implication there is that God's intention is for all mankind to be married. And in fact, again, I know this is post-sin, but when Jesus talked about uh, marriage and singleness in Matthew 19, he talked about those who are single for the kingdom of God's sake, uh, some who are forced to be that way because uh, they were eunuchs, they were uh, they were forced to be eunuchs, so they have no choice about being married. So, um, no, the Bible is very balanced on uh, advantages, benefits of marriage, singleness, and I don't think we push one over the other if we want to be biblically balanced. Okay, next uh, question. It's not on this passage, but we'll look at 1 Corinthians 7 to, in, as a partial answer to, to the question. It's a sort of a multifaceted question. This person is trying to wrestle through the issue of uh, Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. They have at the top of this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. And so it's sort of, it's sort of a threefold question. First question is, when are wars considered righteous? And really, the only answer that you can give to that definitively without question is the answer when God commands them. 
I mean, in other words, in the Old Testament, you have God telling his people, go to war, go against the Amalekites, go against this group, whatever. So if God commanded it, it's right. Uh, if you go beyond that, you, you enter into, and I'm not saying that we can't make any uh, you know, unbiased uh, assessment, but you go beyond that into trying to assess wars, and you immediately enter into some subjectivity. In other words, what, what we might consider to be a righteous war. You know, uh, the, again, I'm not implying there aren't, you know, circumstances, parameters that would make a war proper, uh, right. But in just in answer to your question, when are wars considered righteous? When the only way that I know we can be absolutely certain and definitive is when God commanded them. And that was in the Old Testament when the people of Israel were conquering the land. So coming out of that, the next question along these lines is, are we to be obedient to a dictator until he is overthrown for his evil governing? This is probably coming from a few weeks ago, 1 Peter 2, and we looked at all the passages where God says that. He says it to the Romans who are under the Caesar. Peter says it to the believers under the Roman Empire. And so the answer is yes. The, the only other action, if you, if you aren't uh, submissive to a dictator, the only other answer is rebellion, which just can't be supported scripturally. Uh, it's, it's clearly wrong. However, in saying that, I'm not implying that there is, it's automatically wrong if there is an avenue or an opportunity for release from that situation. And that's why I had you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, because here, 1 Corinthians 7, this is the passage I was referring to earlier, which is primarily about singleness in marriage. But in the middle of it, Paul makes some statements that to American Christians seem absolutely radical. And the reason why I say to American Christians is because uh, to American Christians, the, you, you know, to so many, the, the dominant issue is our freedom, our political freedom. So for Paul to make a statement like he makes, which has a completely different paradigm, the paradigm of the gospel, the paradigm of the, the, the preeminence of living for Christ in whatever situation you're in, this is, a, this is a stretch for American Christians. So here in verse 17, he is basically saying this because he's been talking about some are thinking, well, if I'm married, should I try to be single? If I'm single, should I try to be married? And, and they're trying to wrestle through that, and Paul's answering their questions. Verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I teach or ordain, instruct in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? That is, as a Jew, let him not become uncircumcised. So if God saved you as a Jew, then be Jewish and seek to live for Christ in your Jewish community. Re seek to win your Jewish friends, relatives to Christ. If you're called circumcised, don't think, well, uh, you know, I'm no longer Jewish because I'm a Christian. No, you still are Jewish. If you know Jesus as Messiah, you're still Jewish. Then don't try to become uncircumcised. Don't try to become non-Jewish. And then he says, was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. That is, uh, if God saved you as a Gentile, you don't have to become Jewish. Just be who you are as a Gentile believer in your, your uh, circle, uh, living for Christ in that uh, setting. And then he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. In other words, however, whatever your circumstances, when God saved you, then use those circumstances to honor God, glorify Christ, be salt and light right where God has saved you. And then he says this. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. Now that's the radical statement. That's just, I mean, to American Christians, that sounds just, what? Don't be, it's no big deal that you're, you know, if you're a slave. 
Well, it's not that it's no big deal, but I'll tell you what, beloved, there's something that's a way bigger deal, and that's your testimony for Christ, your impact, your life for Christ. So that's why he could say, were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. So in other words, if you can get out of that situation, if you can get out of that undesirable situation, not by running away, by the way, because we know from the book of Philemon that Paul said that was unacceptable when a slave by the name of Onesimus did run away. Paul sent him back to his master, uh, Philemon. So, it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. If, you can, if, if, if within the right context, right parameters, you can, you can be free, then use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is really the Lord's freedman. So if you're a slave, you really belong to Christ, then in that context, live for Christ, honor Christ. Um, and then, likewise, he who is called while free... You're not really free. You're Christ's slave. You're bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Whether you're politically free or not politically free or slavery free or not slavery free, don't become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So coming back to your question, uh, do you, you know, if you happen to be a Christian who in God's providential purposes has you born in a country where it's a dictator, what are your alternatives? You just, that's the, the setting in which you are called, that is called into the family of God if you're a Christian, so you seek to honor Christ in that. But if you can be free, if there's some way you get out of that in a, in a, a less than, that less than desirable circumstance, you can use it. You can, you can grab that opportunity. But basically what Paul is saying is don't make that your main issue anyway. Your main focus ought to be, I just want to honor Christ wherever he puts me. Wherever in his providential purposes he places me in life, whether I happen to be born in the United States or I happen to be born, uh, you know, in Turkey or I happen to be born in Albania or in Russia or wherever, okay, that's where God has placed me and I want to be salt and light. If I have an opportunity to better my circumstances, that's fine. That's not a big deal. But don't force it. Don't manipulate it. Make living for Christ your primary focus. So then, in the follow-up, this is sort of coming off the first question, when are wars considered righteous? Uh, what about the Revolutionary War, World War I, World War II? You know, I get asked this a, a ton, especially about the Revolutionary War. And I'll tell you, here's my answer all the time. I've been asked it so often that I've kind of finally got my answer down, okay? Kind of got it pat. All right, here's my answer. Knowing what I know, and I wasn't there, so I don't know everything, okay? So I'm acknowledging that up front. But knowing what I know from this far away in limited, limited perspective, I could not have, as a Christian, with a clear conscience, participated in the Revolutionary War. Because I would have felt like I was disobeying God. Because just, you know, I, I understand the whole taxation without representation, all the things that were being fought for. But the fact of the matter is, I couldn't with a clear conscience, knowing that Scripture says, submit to your government, unless they're telling you to do evil, uh, unless they're telling you you can't pray, can't read your Bible, can't talk about Christ, etc. Uh, so from my limited perspective, what I know, I could not have participated in the Revolutionary War. However, I wasn't there. I don't know. I know there were godly men who wrestled through that. I don't, I don't cast a, make a judgment on them. Uh, because again, I've learned in life that you, you, you need to be careful about making an assessment on someone else if you haven't walked there through in their shoes and you don't have all the facts they have. I don't have all the facts. I'm very far removed. So I'm not saying they were wrong. Maybe they weren't wrong. I'm just saying, from my limited perspective, what I know, 
I, with a clear conscience, could not have participated. Uh, so that's my answer on, on that question. All right, next question says this. Uh, how would you explain the spiritual lesson of whoever drinks the water of Jesus, the water that Jesus gives, will never thirst to a child? And this is, of course, coming from John 4, Jesus talking with the woman at the well, and he says that, you know, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst, but, uh, you know, it will be eternal life. So how would you say that to a child? Uh, maybe the, you know, obviously it depends on the age of the child, but maybe the simplest way is just to say uh, a, a drink of water doesn't last forever. You know, most kids would understand that concept. You, you have a drink of water now, it tastes good, but you, you need another drink of water in a couple hours, and you need another drink of water. A, a drink of water doesn't last forever, but the gift of life that Jesus gives us does last forever. That's basically the contrast of what Jesus was saying. So, again, depending on the age of the child, that's probably the terminology, the wording I would try to use just uh, in explaining that concept. Okay, next question. Uh, let's turn to Romans 12. This is not, again, on this text, but this text may give us some insight. I really appreciated the young gal who asked this question, young gal from our church. Uh, uh, she, it's two questions, but we'll kind of put them together. She says, uh, how do you reach out in a public school? And next question, how do you grow in Christ in a public school when it is hard to not be like the world? That's a very good question, a valid question, a very noble and commendable question. So you, you kind of, I think, probably know the answer to the first question that you asked because you talk about it's hard not to be like the world. So I'll go back and answer your first question. How do you reach out in a public school? And I think the key is by being distinct, by, by being different. Your classmates have to see a difference in your life. That is just, that's foundational. They have to see that something is different. If you talk just like them, if you use all the same language, and you're into all the same stuff, and you have all the same priorities, then it's, it's valid for them to wonder, well, what, what difference does Jesus make in your life? What's the big deal about being a Christian? You say you're a Christian, but... I don't see any difference in you and me, so it, it has to start there. Um, I love to quote Hein, the German philosopher, who said this, Show me your redeemed life, and I might believe in your Redeemer. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think that's biblical. That's, that's why Jesus said you're to be salt, you're to be light. Uh, you, you're, Philippians 2, you, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to be different than the world around you. You're going to have to see a difference in the way you talk, uh, the, the, the words you use, um, your, your attitudes, your actions. So that's the starting point. So if you really want to reach out in public school, don't, first of all, think of methodology. In other words, don't think, well, I need to come up with a plan to do this and reach. I'm, I'm glad if, this, if what you're saying is you want to reach some of your classmates for Christ. That is tremendous. But don't start by saying, what program can I use? Is there some program there, some methodology? Start by saying, how can I be what God wants me to be? Because I guarantee you, and I know this is a young lady who, who wrote this, I guarantee you, young lady, that, that people are watching you in your school. Uh, classmates are watching you. And they will see a difference if there is a difference in your life. 
So that is how you begin. Peter says, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, just in a few weeks as we continue our way through 1 Peter. But 1 Peter says, you know, set Christ apart. 1 Peter 3.15. Set Christ apart as Lord and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about your hope. See what Peter says, set Christ apart as Lord in your life. That is, make sure that your life reflects the Lordship of Christ. And if you live that way, be ready. Be ready to answer questions because people are going to ask you. you. Say, why are you, you know, why do you do that? Why, why do you live that way? So how do you reach out in the public school? By first of all being distinct, by being different. Your second question, how do you grow in Christ in a public school when it's hard to not be like the world? Well, I've had you turn to Romans 12 to answer this question. I'll answer it, and then we'll look at the verses. And and this is what I would say. You must, you absolutely must keep pumping the Word of God into your heart and mind. You must. If you really want to, as you expressed in here, want to grow when you're in that situation that is squeezing you to just be like everyone else, you have to pump God's truth into your heart and mind. And I take that right out of Romans 12, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Here's here's exactly what you talked about. Do not be conformed to this world. That is, do not be, you could almost paraphrase this, squeezed into the world's mold. Don't let the world do that to you. But instead, be transformed, here we go, by the renewing of your mind. Renewing your mind with God's truth and with God's word. You, you have to do that. Because you are, I'm sure, you're just in a battle all day by the things that the other students talk about and all of this that just could grab on you, weigh on you, and pull you down. And I, I can really appreciate this. I can relate to it. I was a sophomore in high school uh, when I uh, surrendered my life to Christ. And uh, I was on the football team, and I was in school, and I was around. And so there was this, I mean, it's like over the weekend, radical change. I leave School Friday afternoon, no intention, you know, nothing in my life about Christ. I come back Monday morning because it was a Sunday night when I surrendered my life to Christ. And I come back determined that I'm going to be different and stand for Christ. And so one of the things I did as a, a high schooler was I, I bought the New Testament on cassette tape. And that was back, you know, when you used to use cassette tapes in those days. I bought the New Testament on cassette tape. And every morning when I would get up, when I was making my bed and getting ready for school, I would, the first thing I would do is turn that tape on. And I would listen to Scripture while I was making my bed, getting dressed, getting ready. And then when I would drive to school, I would play it in my car. And then when I would come home, I would play it. Because I knew that with all that was coming into my mind, you know, Jesus made an interesting statement in John 15. He said, now you are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you, John 15, 3. I knew that I had to have the Word of God cleanse my mind and my thinking because all the stuff I heard every day at school, on the football team, in the locker room, you know, in, in class, and, and et cetera. And so I had to clean my mind with the Word of God, and I had to equip my mo- heart and mind with the Word of God. So that's what I did. Instead of listening, and I loved music like most teenagers did, but instead of listening to music in the morning when I got up or listening to it on the way to school, on the way home, I listened to Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that's the way you have to do it, but I will say that if you want an honest answer to your question, how do you grow in Christ in a public school when it's hard not to be like the world? The Holy Spirit tells you right here, you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you don't, 
If you don't, as 1 Peter 2 says, you remember the passage you looked at a few weeks ago, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If you don't desire the word, if you don't take in the word, you won't grow. It's that simple. So if you want to grow, you've got to figure out whether it's through scripture memory, Bible study, accountability with others to apply scripture. Again, more, more than one way to skin a cat. But however you do it, you've got to make sure that this truth gets into your heart, mind, and fleshes out in your life. Or you will do what Paul says not to do here, and that is you will be conformed to this world. All right, next question says uh, this. Uh, again, we don't have to turn back to it because the, the passage is quoted. Um, it's from Job 1917. Uh, how could Job say he is repulsive to his children or the children of his own body? This is Job 19. If they had died. Now, if you remember the story, back in Job 1, 18 and 19, all his kids were killed in that satanic attack that God permitted. Going back to the first question of tonight, God's sovereign will, permissive will, and all of that. So how could Job say he is repulsive to the children of his own body if they had died? Uh, the answer to this question is a translation issue. I looked this up in the Hebrew this afternoon, and it is valid to translate this, as the New King James does, the children of my own body. That would be a valid translation. But not most of the English translations go that route, recognizing the difficulty that his kids were gone. So the NASB says, um, my own brothers. And And the ESV says, the children of my own mother. So again, it would be siblings. Um, but it is interesting because when I looked at it in the Hebrew, the inclina- if I were just translate it without the statement knowing about Job 1, I would translate it, the children of my own body, because of the, the Hebrew there. Uh, but the term for body is the term for womb, and of course men don't have a womb. And so this is why the translators have felt like that probably Job was not referring to the children of his womb, but the children of his mother's womb, i.e. his siblings. And that's why the NASB and the ESV uh, go with siblings. So I think that's, that's probably right, and the, the right answer that he is not referring to his own children. He had none at that time. They were dead, uh, but he is actually referring to uh, his siblings. Uh, and then the next question here, uh, let's turn to uh, Mark 13 for this one. This is actually on this passage. You know what? This is a parallel to Matthew 24. So let's look at it in Matthew 24. For a couple of reasons, I want us to look at it here. Just some general background before we, we answer the question here. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25, those two chapters are a unit. We have a chapter division in the middle. It's a, it's, otherwise, it would be really long. But in, in one sense, it's a little bit of an uh, unfortunate chapter break because the whole thing is one unit, and this is what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this discourse on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. And he gave it in response to a question that the disciples asked uh, in chapter 24, uh, verse um, 1 as Jesus went out and departed from the temple, that's not only the temple proper, but the whole temple complex, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Herod had beautified this temple complex, made the temple mount. It was just, uh, it was just descriptions of it are spectacular. And 
all of these buildings, Solomon's porticos, all of this on the Temple Mount. So as they departed, his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. Not just the temple proper, but all of these magnificent buildings. Marble, beautiful stone, gold-plated. And they basically say, hey, Jesus, what do you think about these? Isn't this something? We've got some really neat, really neat structures here on the Temple Mount. And Jesus said to them, do you, see, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, the day will come when the Temple Mount will be nothing but a flat rock. There'll be nothing. Jesus wasn't saying the Temple Mount itself would be destroyed. It wasn't destroyed. It's still there today. You can go there and see the Western Wall. and You can go up on top of the Temple Mount. But he said all of these buildings on top will be thrown down. By the way, you, you can go to the Temple Mount today. You can go to the Western Wall, actually the southern part of the Western Wall. And you can see a lot of the stones that were thrown down by the Romans. From, they're still there, the very ones. In fact, there's, there's one when I was there just a few months ago that's just really, really uh, interesting because it hits like what would have been on the sidewalk, cracked it, and the big stone is right there. And it's still sitting there from A.D. 70 huge rock. The Romans pushed all of those down. They burned some of them. Limestone can burn. Pushed them down. And Jesus said that's going to happen. Well, in the minds of the disciples, wow, if that happens, if the temple is destroyed, that must mean the end of the world. Because that, that's it. That's everything. So it's not surprising that they say, verse 3, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when Will these things be? And notice their next question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Again, in their minds, they just assumed, well, if this is going to happen, that's the end of the age. If, if our temple gets destroyed, that's it. So Jesus answers their question. He answers their second question in the Olivet Discourse. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He doesn't really answer the destruction of Jerusalem. That was going to come in A.D. 70, just about 40 years after this. But the whole Olivet Discourse is an answer to their question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So he tells them, here's the sign of my coming. Here are the signs. You know what's going to happen as a prelude to my coming? By the way, pause here. Jesus' coming here is clearly, undoubtedly, his second coming to the earth. This is not talking about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, commonly referred to as the rapture. That wasn't even on the disciples' radar. That's not what they ask about. If you try to find the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, you're going to have to find it in the white spaces. It's not there. Jesus is talking about his coming to the earth at the end of the age. So he says, you want to know what signs will lead up to it? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. You could write in the margin, Revelation 6, 1 through 8, because that's the exact description parallel of the first four seals of the book of Revelation, the, the events of the tribulation period. They'll deliver you up to tribulation, will kill you, verse 9. You're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who is you? You Jewish people are going to be hated by all other nations for my name's sake. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then don't miss this fascinating statement. Whoever reads, let him understand. That lets us know that this Olivet Discourse isn't even, wasn't even really for those who heard it audibly. It's for people who would read it in the future. We don't know if Matthew said that or Jesus said that, but either way, if Jesus said it or Matthew wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's saying, you know what, this information is about the end times. It's not even really for the disciples. 
Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down. So get out of Israel if you see this happening. And so, he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So when is my coming? After the tribulation. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So Jesus is coming back at the end of the tribulation. And what is he coming back to do? He's coming back to set up his kingdom. That's why in chapter 25, verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. And now we have the sheep and goat judgment. So this whole section, chapters 24, chapter 25, all about the tribulation period, second coming of Jesus, and the kingdom. All right? In the middle of that, you have a statement, Matthew 24, 14, and this is what the question is about. You have a statement, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay? Now here's the question. Can believers hasten the coming of Christ? I have heard through the years that Christ won't return until all have heard the gospel. It seems some mission organizations even hold that as a goal and motivation to share the gospel. I have struggled to wrap my mind around this concept, especially as it relates to God's sovereignty. In relation to this, I came across Mark 13, 10 the other day, and noticed the context is the tribulation, as it is in Matthew 24. I wonder if this idea of Christ not coming until all have heard comes from this passage. I wonder, too, and you are right on, by the way. That is exactly where this idea comes from. And you're, you're absolutely right on that Christians use that phrase. Mission organizations use that phrase. We, we've got to get the gospel out to everybody because Jesus can't come back till everybody hears. That's not true. That's not true. If you're talking about Jesus coming in the clouds to gather his church, that is a signless event. It could happen at any moment. When the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That could happen before we close this service. So it is not true that Jesus can't come back to gather the church until everyone has heard the gospel. But it is also true that Jesus will not come back in the second coming until, as he says here in verse 14, until the gospel of the kingdom, notice, the gospel of the coming kingdom, which is right after his second coming. So the gospel that's preached during the tribulation is repent. The king is coming back and bringing the kingdom. You need to be ready. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. In fact, God will use 144,000 witnesses, Revelation 7. He will use two special witnesses, Revelation chapter 11. And he will even have an angel flying in the midheaven around the world preaching the gospel to people who are on planet Earth. He will make sure that the whole world hears the gospel of the kingdom before he comes back. So it's, the idea has just been sort of mixed the, in with, with the, the idea of sharing the gospel today for the great gathering. So I wonder if this is where it's coming from. I wonder, too, if Revelation 14, 6, 7 is what really is in view here. Could you please clarify my thinking and try to answer whatever question I am trying to ask? So I think maybe we've done that, all right? Uh, so uh, good catch on your part because this is a different context than how it's usually used. All right? Let's stand and close in prayer. Remember the reception in the activity center, if you can stay afterwards, uh, to uh, greet the uh, individuals who participated in the parent-child dedication tonight. Father, thank you for a great evening. Thank you for this Lord's Day, both morning and evening. 
Thank you for the preciousness of your word. Thank you for the preciousness of children. We, we can't help but think of how Jesus loved to have little ones around him, even when there were those who tried to uh, shun them and tried to, to push them away. Jesus said, don't do that. Suffer the little children to come unto me. And so as we see his love for little ones, uh, it increases. It doesn't give us a love for little ones because we have that already. We love little ones, but it certainly increases our love for them. And so I thank you for a, a wonderful day together, a wonderful evening. Dismiss us with your blessing. May we be salt and light wherever you have placed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.